Good morning. Whoa. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. Look around. We're not as spaced out as we have been, and it's good that you are here, even in the middle of such a cold uh, weekend, or especially cold morning. Uh, it's great to have you with us at Calvary Baptist Church. If you're here on site, we look forward to chatting and catching up with you. And if you're online with us, we welcome you in the name of the Lord, and uh, we want to encourage you to make use of the uh, documents we have available to you at calvarybaptistchurch.ca forward slash live, uh, missions bulletins, uh, bulletin, and kids bulletin, etc., etc. Please do um, keep in touch with us if you haven't been here on site and aren't able to come right away. Please don't be a stranger. Uh, just want to let you know, last week we talked about the special offering for the crisis in the Ukraine, and we are in connection through the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches. We are in connection with missionaries over there, and so we want to encourage you, if you feel led by the Spirit, to support uh, the ministry of those that are right in the middle of the chaos, to uh, go to the website right here and to um, uh, send an offering to them. And uh, we know the Lord uh, will supply all their needs according to his riches and glory. So this morning is uh, special for a few reasons. Uh, one of them being that uh, we are uh, coming to celebrate a family. The, the family that I'm talking about this morning is the Lim family, who wants to celebrate and uh, um, uh, recognize the Lord's gift of their son, John Lim. So I'm going to uh, encourage the Lims to come up, Meredith and Adam, and we're going to take a moment here to do a child celebration, to pray and to uh, talk to the family and uh, to see John for ourselves. So this is uh, the Lim family, and uh, uh, to begin with, I just want to start by saying a couple things about what we're about to do here. So, um, let me explain what we're actually doing up here. Uh, the Bible says that children are a heritage, a blessing from the Lord. Um, the fruit of the womb is a reward. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So, we are today recognizing that John is a gift from God to uh, Adam and Meredith and to Madeline, right, to Madeline, a, a gift to their family, and so we celebrate that from the Lord. And we're also taking a few moments to, um, to recognize that God has given uh, this new life to, to, to the family, and we're going to thank God for that, for John. Uh, the Bible is clear that all life is precious and that all life is a gift from him. So today we will be celebrating the life of uh, this specific child, that is John. And uh, in the next service, we'll be uh, celebrating some other uh, children as well. And we're also, as a church, coming alongside the Lim family, recognizing that parenting is very difficult. Um, being a mom, being a, a, a dad, being a husband, being a wife is a spiritual uh, battle and warfare, and so we as a church want to say, uh, want to encourage the family and say, keep on keeping on for the sake of the Lord, and so we as a church come together with the limbs, and uh, we encourage them 
in their uh, family life as well. Um, and these parents are making public commitments before their church family today to parent their child in a godly way. Um, we're charging them from scripture with their joyful and sacred responsibility before the Lord in their parenting. Uh, so we're seeking the Lord's blessing in prayer for this child uh, this morning. That's a lot of what we're about to do. I just want to say a couple things about what we're not about to do. Just to clarify what we're not doing up here. Uh, this is not a baptism or a confirmation of salvation. Uh, we believe the only way to be saved is to put our trust in Jesus to save us from our sins. And this is a decision that we pray and we will pray that John will make one day when they are older and can understand the good news of Jesus Christ. In doing this, Adam and Meredith um, will not be perfect parents, but they do intend to commit their children and their son John to the Lord, needing the Lord and his people to stand behind them in this uh, effort. So there's going to be a couple commitments and charges, and Adam and Meredith, the only job you have is to say, we do, okay? So I'm going to and you can say we do. So, um, a few of these specific charges. The Bible says, Adam and Meredith, that the mystery is profound, referring to marriage, uh, that uh, this is a profound mystery about Christ and the church. Um, that, and he says in uh, Ephesians 5, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, Adam and Meredith, do you remember uh, your marriage covenant and do you commit to remembering your marriage covenant and your relationship as husband and wife as a reflection of Christ's love for his people? The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Do you commit to raising John in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? The Bible says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall, walk, uh, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Do you, Adam and Meredith, commit to being disciple makers of Jesus in your home? We do. The Bible says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do you, Adam and Meredith, commit to praying both for and with John from day to day so that he will trust, uh, so that he will see your trust in the Lord and learn to trust him as well. The Bible says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you commit to teaching and training John to live by the word of God through your personal example, loving discipline, and worship of the Lord? We do. The Bible says, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. Do you, Adam and Meredith, commit to seeking the, uh, to lead John to a saving and active faith in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit? So now, church, as uh, a congregation of people, 
that uh, are devoted to the Lord Jesus, we want to encourage you to stand and to stand with this family in the efforts that they have just committed to. Um, we're going to give thanks for the life of John. We're going to give thanks for the uh, life and the faith of Meredith and Adam. And we're going to ask that God the Spirit would do a supernatural work, that he'd use us in their life as well, uh, in our relationships with them. So a couple verses as uh, we, we start in prayer. The Bible says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And the Lord says in Numbers 6, the, blessed, uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So as a church, let's pray together for the Lim family. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the life of John. We thank you so much for Adam and Meredith, for setting them apart for yourself and giving them a desire to follow you. And Lord, for the work that you've done in their life. Lord, we pray that you would continue to stir up a desire for uh, godliness in their hearts and that the, um, uh, John and uh, Madeline would see in Adam and Meredith a living and active faith and that they would see that the Lord Jesus is the most important to them. And that John would put his faith in Jesus Christ and that he would be spared from the follies of life in wickedness and that he would be kept in your love and that he would desire to love you and love his neighbor as himself. That he would love the Lord Jesus and his word, that he would delight in it and it would give him great vigor and joy and uh, pleasure in this world. Uh, we pray for the Lim family and ask your protection spiritually upon them. And that you would empower them to say yes to godliness and note on godliness. And that, Lord, their family would uh, uh, inherit the blessings of being followers of Christ, living under the goodness and the gracious will of God our Father. And so we commit them to you as they commit to living in light of your promises and word for uh, the sake of their family, uh, to bring many to a saving knowledge of Christ. We pray that their efforts to lead John and uh, uh, lead him to faith in Christ, uh, that they would see uh, the fruit of their labors and that you would open his heart to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Uh, we entrust them to you and we thank you for uh, their life and their family. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lynn. While you're standing, you can remain standing, and I'll invite the worship team up to uh, come. And we want to pray for the current uh, crisis um, in many parts of the world, but in the Ukraine especially right now. So let's pray again together. Father in heaven, we recognize that you are the sovereign Lord. You are in control of all things right now. And Lord, there is many things that are being done in this world that do not please you. And there is much darkness, Lord, and you have sent Jesus to be the light of the world. And that those who follow him would not live in darkness anymore. We pray for the sake of your church, 
uh, in uh, Ukraine. We pray for the furtherance and advancement of the gospel there. We think of the many other parts of the world that are currently uh, maybe not being spotlighted, but are in war and seasons of great trouble and trial. We pray for them as well, and we ask that your church would continue to uh, proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and devote themselves to the word and to prayer. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the connection we have with you by your spirit, and we ask that you would fill us with your spirit now as we sing praise, as we uh, give thanks and hear your word, and as we take the Lord's Supper, uh, that you'd be honored and that we would honor you from our heart, because Jesus is Lord. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Good morning, church. Please join me to praise our Lord this morning.
morning church we're going to take communion together so if you do not have one of these cups you can make your way to the back and grab one for those that you're sitting with i uh i've been binge watching rich mullins videos does anyone remember rich mullins the singer songwriter and uh <laughs> heather can attest to this i was listening to his song the creed which is our doxology and it's a, a beautiful song, and it's what you would expect, just the truths of the Christian life. And the one thing that he adds as he sings that song is this line at the end that he repeats a couple of times, I did not make it, but it is making me. And that was striking my heart this week. That is to say that the truths that we are celebrating as we take communion together are the sort of thing that make you, that shape the way that you look at your life, not just here among believers, but also out in the world. And it's that spirit in which I want us to think about the Lord's Supper today. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll ask you to open up the first portion so you can access the bread. Paul's writing here to the Corinthians, and he says to them in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, 
on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. open up the cup. And then there's this line in the passage that I've always found fascinating. In verse 25, it says, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper. And the implication is at the bookends of the time together. At the beginning of the meal and at the end, Christ institutes this communion for us. It's a family celebration. And so he says to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. For as often as you, Calvary Baptist Church, eat this bread and drink this cup, you guys are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have brought us into your family, that we can come and partake in a meal alongside your people. Lord, I look out this morning and I see so many bright spirits who are yours. And we are delighted that you have welcomed us into your table. I pray that as we go from here, as we worship together in song in a few minutes, as we hear your word proclaimed, that our hearts would truly say that this is uh, making and shaping us. It is the thing that is guiding and driving our lives. Thank you for being among us today. In Christ's name, amen. Our scripture reading this morning is in the books of Romans, chapter 4, verses 4 to 8. Uh, let us read together. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. As, as David also speaks of the blessing of the one who whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Amen. Please stand with me. other and lay down our stone. 
Amen. Beautiful singing. Would you pray, pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have a Savior and a friend today. And no matter what we're going through, joys or sorrows, that you are with us. And we can come to you today with arms wide open and ask for your, you to save us and help us and keep us and guide us. What a blessing that is. Lord, now as we come to your word, would you speak to us afresh today? Convict us and encourage us by the power of your spirit. As we sing, would you help us to see each other through the eyes of your son? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Oh, to be more like Jesus. Did you ever wish that you're more like Jesus even now? I do. There are way too many times that I still stumble or hurt someone or say things I regret. I really wish that I was much less selfish by now, less worldly, less prideful. I, w I feel it'd be so great if, if Jesus would just zap away all my sinful tendencies, right? Just accelerate, expedite my sanctification process, finish his work so that I would be fully like him. Because it can be so frustrating that I'm not. <laughs> Yet I know that's not how it works. God wants us to, to walk the path of growing in godliness. And even though our becoming like him can seem like an agonizingly slow process at times, it's still happening, slowly but surely. However, I think there is a way that we can experience becoming more like him, more fully like him, even now. When we stop thinking of this only as an individual journey, but instead are also a community project. See, I can only reflect Christ so much on this side of glory. But you and I together can reflect him in a better way, in a fuller way. Because you can be strong where I am weak, and vice versa. I might be one part of the body of Christ, but we need all the parts of the body of Christ to reflect him well. And our community can collectively take on more of the shape of Christ now than I ever could on my own. And this is part of the idea that behind what we've been seeing lately in the book of Ephesians. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles now. Today is technically part two of a sermon that I started last week on the end of Ephesians 4, in which we considered what it means to be a Christ-shaped community, a collection of people saved by grace through faith in Christ alone who are learning together to be and live like 
who we already are in God's sight. And in a pandemic-weary, relationally distanced, conflict-laden, hostility-saturated world, the picture we see of a Christ-shaped community here is a welcomed and beautiful thing. So, we're right in the middle of a, a series of clear commands that the Apostle Paul gave to believers, which double as ways that we walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called, as well as distinctives of people who have put off their old selves and put on the new. At root, these are all implications or results or fruits of the gospel, okay, of being saved by Christ. And I argued last week that there are two main defining marks of Jesus, grace and truth, that are what we should then be reflecting more and more, that we, they should especially shape us as a community, grace and truth. So we saw that a community shaped by grace and truth, first of all, is entirely honest in our words and in our work. Verse 25 said this. Look at it with me. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then verse 28 said, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So honest in words and work. We also saw that a community like this is essentially motivated by opportunities for generosity, right there in verse 28. Like what we should work honestly in order to be able to give generously, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And finally, we jump back to verses 26 and 27 to see that a community shaped by grace and truth is extremely careful about the dangers of anger. Look at them. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not have to let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Unresolved Sinful anger can eat us alive, giving the devil easy access to our hearts. And so we're called to, to deal with it quickly, as quickly and as urgently as we can. Now, if you want any more details on any of those verses, you can go listen to last week's sermon. We're not going to stay there today. For today, I want us to see three additional major points from the rest of this chapter. The first one has to do with our speech again. Okay, look at verse 29. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So there is a, a negative and a positive component to this command. Let no corrupting talk out, and let good, building up, fitting, gracious talk out. So, not only are we to be honest in words, as verse 25 said, this says we should seek to be helpful with them. I worded it this way, that a community shaped by grace and truth is graciously helpful in speech. All right? 
community shaped by grace and truth will aim to be graciously helpful in the way they talk. Perhaps the best word for this kind of speech would be edifying. But first, the negative side says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. What is corrupting talk? Well, the phrase literally means rotten or putrid, foul or dirty speech. I recall times when we received notices in the mail when our drinking water may be contaminated. Usually because there's some construction work being done in the area, maybe on the pipes in the area. So they let us know that our water could be temporarily contaminated and, and might come out of our taps yellow or brown or might smell funny. But what if I ignored those warnings and served polluted water to my family or to my guests? Not only would I be negligent, but I could actually do harm to the people around me, right? And this is similar to what Paul is saying about our speech here, that if I let certain kinds of speech out of my mouth, it can corrupt people. And it doesn't just defile those I speak to, it defiles me as well. Like Jesus said in Matthew 15, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Now, even if we think certain things, they can corrupt our hearts, right? our motives, our attitudes. But it's when we let them out that they do damage to the community around us. Which is why Paul brings this up here in the context of, of talking about Christ-shaped community. So, what kinds of speech is this talking about? Well, really, it's anything harmful or sinful. Paul will bring up Foolish talk or crude joking in chapter 5, and vulgarity or profanity would certainly be considered corrupting talk. It could also include abusive, hostile, or contemptuous speech, slander, lies, and more. One translation calls it any unwholesome talk. Anything unwholesome. But this verse paints a picture of us preventing corrupting talk from leaving our mouths, as if they were imprisoned criminals or caged animals trying to escape. How do we do that? It's easier said than done, after all. How do we control our speech, our mouths? If you're familiar with James chapter 3, it would seem to say this is impossible. Our speech is hard to control. And this is indeed something that is beyond our natural selves. But the good news for believers is that we have new selves now. It may take time to unlearn old language patterns or habits, a good amount of repentance for when our words are unwholesome, uh, a growing self-discipline and self-control, and most importantly, the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit. But if you're in Christ, you are a new person, and you can change even though it's hard. You can change now. 
And if we can bring our communication, our speech in line with this standard, Ephesians 4.29, it would really stand out today. Because this is decidedly not how people in our world talk. Just try running one episode of a TV show through an Ephesians 4.29 filter. Or one work shift of your coworkers. Like almost every conversation we hear can be tainted by verbal sins of all kinds. Brothers and sisters, we must no longer walk as unbelievers do in the futility of our minds, and you could add the futility of our mouths. We must speak differently. And when we do, it can be a, a powerful countercultural witness. Some of us might wonder, is God really bothered or offended by such a seemingly small thing as words that come, up, come out of our mouth? Like, aren't words just puffs of air moving over our voice boxes and tongues and lips? Well, words are certainly more significant than just physiological puffs of air. And there are certain kinds of language that I believe God does find offensive. However, that's not the point here. God cares less about the words that come out of our mouths than he does about our hearts. And our words reflect what's in our hearts. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our mouth our, our, our reflect what's in our hearts. And our words can also harm other people's hearts around us. And God cares about them too. That we can hurt them. We can corrupt them. And God cares about them. He cares about the health of our community as a whole. And that's what makes this such a crucial thing to address. Or even for us to repent of. Like, what is your speech revealing about the condition of your heart? How might it be affecting the hearts of those around you? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And then, on the positive side, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, I find that pretty startling. Because Paul doesn't just say, don't use bad language, use good language. Right? He says to only speak helpful, edifying, beneficial words with one another. That's it. As Brian Chappell explains, we are not even allowed to fall back upon some category of neutrality in rationalizing what we say, as in, it doesn't hurt anyone, so it's all right to say. The apostle standard is that if it does not build up and benefit, then it is not worthy to be said. It's a high standard. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. This echoes 
verses 15 and 16, if you remember, where we were told to, to build one another up by speaking the truth in love. There, there's something about our words that can either build people up or tear them down. The words we say could be like bricks or, or lumber that's used to construct a building, adding one truth or encouragement or exhortation onto the other. Or our words, we say, can be like the explosives used by a demolition crew. So, think back over some of the conversations you had so far today or over the last week. How much of what you said built up who you were talking to or talking about? Think back over your recent social media posts or texts or phone calls, were they edifying? In those occasions, is there anything that you should have said instead or said differently? Now, I don't ask these things to just make us feel regret. We could second-guess ourselves till the cows come home. I ask you so that we can consider where we might need to apologize or repent, but also so we can be thinking through what to do differently today or tomorrow. How might you use your words for good today? To encourage someone, maybe to encourage someone who feels really low, discouraged. How might you build up someone's courage or endurance or joy today? How might your words more appropriately fit the occasion, as it says here, this week? As one version put it, if there is any good word for edification according to the need of the moment, say that. Say that. Listen, as a culture, we have done a lot of tearing down lately. I'm sure there's more to come. So what might we intentionally do to, to very intentionally build each other up today? We're called to be different. Some might object a bit, though, thinking that not all people deserve such helpful, encouraging words. Some people have earned derision or ridicule. Some people need to be put in their place. Here's the thing. You may be absolutely right. But did you notice the last part of verse 29? Look at it. It says, Let no corrupting talk out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Grace. Goodness shown specifically to the undeserving. This should be our motivation. And each one of our words can be, in essence, a gift of grace to those who hear them. And if Jesus has been extravagantly gracious to us, we should become gracious people. To put it plainly, people saved by grace... Speak with grace.
People saved by grace speak with grace. Now, this doesn't mean there's never a time for loving biblical correction, confrontation, or rebuke. There are occasions where that is fitting and, in fact, the gracious thing to do. But let's just consider how gracious are our words even with people who offend or frustrate us? How gracious are we? There aren't many verses in the Bible that have stopped me dead in my tracks like this one has before. I clearly remember a time a few years ago when I was upset for whatever reason at my wife. And I don't remember why, but I went off on my own and was stewing in my irritation. And at that moment, I opened up my phone and a scripture memory app popped this verse up on the screen. I wasn't trying to see it, okay? I wasn't being super spiritual and opening up my Bible in the middle of the conflict. (laughs) I was opening my phone, but God threw it right in front of my face, and it hit me like a load of bricks because I had been thinking through, really rehearsing what I wanted to say to my wife, and it wasn't edifying. I wanted to take her down a notch. And then I hear, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who are here. Give her grace. I didn't feel she deserved that. And that's the point of grace. I then had to to rethink things to think through what I could say instead that would be graciously helpful to her. I don't remember what I ended up saying, but she told me later that that meant so much to her. If I I had said what I wanted to say, it would have just kept the fight going. wouldn't help much. But instead, grace diffused the situation, completely changed our outlook on it. I was so thankful that God's word really arrested me in that moment. And I hope it does the same for you. That it, right in the moments you need it, that God's word would stop you in your tracks. The community shaped by grace and truth is graciously helpful in their speech. We aspire to this standard because we have been so abundantly graced by God. But there's another reason here why we should speak graciously and edifyingly to others. Actually, this is a reason behind keeping any of the commands given here in Ephesians. Verse 30 tells us this. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I believe the point we need to see here is this. That a community shaped by grace and truth is consciously mindful of the Spirit's pleasure. Community shaped by grace and truth is consciously mindful of the Holy Spirit's pleasure. Or I guess you could say his potential displeasure. (laughs) But that's the thing. Because of Christ, 
believers have God's constant pleasure now. So, how can we grieve him? First, I would say that we humans can feel multiple complex emotions at the same time. We do it all the time. How much more can an infinite being like God experience many things at the same time? And so, while he takes eternal, unchangeable pleasure in his people, he can still also be grieved by what his people choose to do or how we choose to act. It's similar to how I can feel or I can unconditionally love my children deeper than I ever imagined. Well, I can also be grieved by something they're doing at the exact same time. So, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. That title for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, is a rarely used title in the Bible. It's an exalted title, and it emphasizes who it is that can be offended as well as the seriousness of doing so. But this is also quite the intimate picture of the heart that God has for us. Charles Spurgeon put it this way in his 19th century eloquence. says, For it is an inexpressibly delightful thought that he who rules heaven and earth and is the creator of all things and the infinite and ever-blessed God condescends or comes down to enter into such infinite relationships with his people that his divine mind may be affected by their actions. Now think about that. Who are you for God to be affected by your actions? Who am I? Some of our Theological positions wouldn't state this as strongly as the Bible does here. When we fail to love one another as we ought in the church, the Holy Spirit of God grieves. This thought should both stun us and correct us. This is the Spirit who hovered over the waters in creation who empowered the ministry of Jesus, who fell on the church in power at Pentecost, who convicts us of sin, who gives us new birth, who stirs up love for Christ, who loves us perfectly, and, as it emphasizes here, who seals our redemption until Christ comes again. Like, without the Holy Spirit, you have no guarantee you're saved. (laughs) He seals our redemption And this, Holy Spirit, I can cause to grieve. How can we ever not care if we hurt him? This is the spirit that Ephesians has told us is building us together into a dwelling place for God. So think about it this way. Imagine if I was building a Lego creation with my kids. We carefully put piece after piece together, patiently watching it take shape. But then imagine if before we finish, one of them decided to smash the creation. Right? I'd 
obviously feel grieved in that moment. But who would I feel grieved for? I'd be, I'd be grieved that the project that we've been building together has been damaged or destroyed even. I'd be grieved for my other kids who had been excitingly watching it get built. I'd even be grieved for the one who smashed it, knowing that they'll miss out on joy. I think that's akin to how the Spirit grieves. Like he's constantly working to build us together, empowering us to, to grow together. He's the divine agent of reconciliation, you could say. He's the, the sealer of the unity of the body, of our unity. And when we sinfully hurt each other, we can mar the Spirit's work in building us up. We damage the project that He's working on, and it, it hurts His heart. But not just for His own sake but for our sakes. He grieves for us all. For the ones who are hurt and for the ones doing the hurting. Should the thought of making me sad motivate my kids to do the right thing? Well, if they love me, yes. So, do you love the Lord? You love the Lord. If so, may his word sober us and convict us and correct us while also deeply encouraging us that this is how much he loves us, that he would enter into the sorrow of our brokenness with us. We have his affection, his pleasure forever. Let's not go back and start grieving him now. With that sentiment in mind, let's listen to the final commands in Ephesians 4. You can look at them, verses 31 to 32. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If we don't want to grieve the Lord on the one hand, and we want to be like him on the other, then we will be hugely motivated to take these words seriously and obey them. The point is that a community shaped by grace and truth is repentantly peaceful and kind in relationships. A community shaped by Christ is repentantly peaceful and kind in their relationships. I say repentantly peaceful because of the list of sins in verse 31 that we are to repent of, or as it says there, to put away from you. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all Malice. Now, we've already been talking about a number of those things lately, but here they're grouped together in the context of relational strife. These are all things that have to do with the strife that we may feel amongst each other. So, as I go through this list, I urge you to examine your own heart to see if 
any of these are present and unrepented of in your life right now. Let's not just assume these are other people's problems and not our own. Okay? So first, we're to put away bitterness or resentment. The deep hurts that we hold on to in our souls. Holding them against our offenders. Bitterness is really hard to let go of. To put away. And yet if we don't, we know by experience, like it poisons us long term. We've got to learn to put this away. We're also, it says to put away wrath, also translated as rage, anger that explodes into outbursts of harshness and volume and violence. Wrath can often do severe damage to relationships. So it makes sense that we need to lose it. We're to put away anger, probably more subdued or general anger than rage would be, like seething or fuming. Like we saw last week, anger is not something to leave unaddressed. It's too dangerous to us. Have to deal with it. We're also to put away clamor, likely talking about brawling or public quarreling. Think of the the sad stereotype of Baptist business meetings. By God's grace, this may be rare. But whenever it does rear its ugly head among us, it calls for repentance. We put away. We're to put away slander, which would include cutting words, backbiting, spreading things about people, abusive speech. Listen, when we're in conflict with other people, it is so easy to slander them to others. Talk down about them. It's got to stop. And we need to put this kind of behavior away for good. And finally, we're to put away these things with along with all malice which speaks of our motives and our intentions, a desire to do evil or see evil done to others. Like if you wish ill will would befall someone or seek to carry out that ill will, that's malice. Now this verse implies that there will inevitably be times when there is strife in our relationships, that these things pop up. But it is crystal clear that we are to be repentantly peaceful whenever that is. And so, think about it. Like if there is anyone that you would say you're not at peace with right now in the family of God, hear God's word, implore you today to put away everything in you that contributes to that strife. As Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If you need help with this, we'd be happy to help. But for the sake of your own soul, for the sake of those who hurt you or who you are hurting, 
And for the sake of the community under Christ as a whole, these things have got to go. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And instead, so in contrast to all this, let us be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's so simple, and yet we still need to be reminded to be kind to one another. Be kind. To say nice things to other people. To send encouraging messages to them. To give good gifts. To welcome them into your home. When someone's in need, to, to make them meals or help them move or give them rides. That when, to, to give them a hug. To, to pray for them. All of these things are, are ways to be kind to one another. And I'm sure you can think of many more. Now, set in the context, though, of relationships and relational strife, this probably implies that we are to be kind to people even when, or especially when, they're unkind to us. Yet another expression of grace. God is committed after all, to showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. May we follow in his steps. Now, the attitude that should especially shape us here, it says, is tenderheartedness or compassion. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Essentially, our hearts should, be, should feel a, a genuine love and concern for others. And if you don't feel that you have a tender heart toward others in the church, I would say pray for God's help here. Because you may feel bitter or jaded or cynical or suspicious or a whole host of other things, but God can soften your heart. I can't soften your heart, but he can. He can give you that heart of compassion like his. And finally, out of kindness and tenderheartedness, we are to be forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ah, forgiveness. Releasing someone from the offense or pain they have caused us. Like really, it's choosing to bear that pain ourselves and then giving it over to Jesus to carry for us. Even secular fields readily acknowledge the benefits and the power of forgiveness. For example, Johns Hopkins Medicine has done a number of studies and research that shows that there is, I quote, an enormous physical burden to being hurt and disappointed, but that the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards for your health, lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels and sleep, and reducing pain, blood pressure, levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. And research points to an increase in the forgiveness health connection as you age. Interesting. Or Pastor Harold Senkfield tells of a time when he was leading a study group, a discussion group with a number of university students. 
talking about Christianity in general, the work of Christ in specific. And as he talked about this, one brilliant psychology grad student named Samantha was, was listening to him, was getting visibly agitated by what he was saying. And he recalls this. When we reviewed how Jesus took on himself all human sin and shame and bestows in turn his own righteousness and holiness to all believers, Samantha's restlessness ramped up a notch. Finally, she pushed back her chair and began pacing around the room. Don't mind me, she announced to the group. I just have to think this through. Do you realize that if what you're saying about guilt and forgiveness is all true, we could empty many of the beds in our mental hospitals? Now, it might be hyperbole, but she was on to something. Now, biblical forgiveness goes far deeper than physical or mental health. It goes to, to seeking relational health and community health and unity and peace and love and joy. It seeks all these things. Now, I know that many of you have been greatly hurt by other people in your life. I don't pretend to know the pain that they've caused, either physical or emotional. I know, though, that forgiveness can, can seem like it's excusing bad behavior or letting people get away with evil, giving up on justice, even though it's none of the above. And I know that it can seem far easier to cling to the pain and nurse a grudge. It can be so difficult to forgive. And yet it is so necessary that we learn to forgive. When we don't, we let the hurts continue to hurt us. We let the hurts continue to divide us. But Christ gave his life to forgive us all of our sin and to bring us together as one. Like, How could we then decide after that that far lesser offenses than all our sin are worth dividing over again? We're like the, the servant in Jesus' parable who was forgiven this astronomical debt and yet won't forgive a, a pitily debt of one of his fellow servants. In Christ, God forgave us, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What did God forgive us for? All of our, let's just walk through this passage, all of our falsehood and lies, all of our sinful anger and unresolved anger, all of our stealing all of our idle laziness, all our selfishness, all of our rotten speech and corrupting talk, all of our grieving the Holy Spirit of God, 
all of our bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice, all of our unkindness, all of our hard-heartedness, even all of our unforgiveness. How did God forgive all these things? By sending Jesus to die for them all. Taking our place. Like we, we're shamefully sinful. And yet when we turn away from our sin and turn to him, he forgives it all. If you haven't, won't you accept God's forgiveness today? Just reach out in faith and believe, and it's yours. I don't believe there is anything quite so liberating as the forgiveness that he gives. Be forewarned, though, when we receive his forgiveness, he then wants us to forgive others, too. As God in Christ forgave you, just as God forgave us. But don't be afraid of that, though, because that's liberating, too. When we don't forgive, it's like we put ourselves in a prison. And it can be also quite the, the powerful picture for a watching world, when despite the hurts that others cause us, we choose the path of forgiveness. Don't know if you know the name of Gladys Staines, but Gladys Staines and her husband Graham were missionaries in India with their three kids back in the 90s, working with leprosy patients, translating scripture, preaching the gospel. But around 20 years ago now, 23 years to be exact, I think, Graham and his two young sons were brutally martyred. Really murdered. Hindu extremists burned them to death in their vehicle where they slept on a trip to go serve them. When Gladys heard the tragic news, she immediately went and found her 13-year-old daughter and tearfully told her, it seems like we've been left alone, but we will forgive. Her daughter, Esther, answered, yes, mommy, we will. Remarkably, they did. When some reporters asked them that they were angry at what had happened, Gladys told them no. And then she promptly shared the gospel with them. In 2019, just recently, Gladys said this. She said, God enabled me to forgive. But it doesn't take away the sadness and the grief that's there. It's not a matter of moving on. It's moving forward. It's not a matter of saying time heals. Time itself can't heal. But God works through situations to bring joy out of sorrow. She then recounted how she has heard of many, many, many people who have said, their God is real. I want to follow their God. I want to be a Christian. And she asked, 
How many people will we see in heaven directly related to those events? We'll never know. And I just praise God for that. That kind of forgiveness is only possible in people who have been forgiven. And if it was possible for God to enable Gladys Staines and Esther Staines to forgive, he can help you too. We killed God's son. And yet, even in that very act, God was working for our eternal forgiveness. And to bring joy out of the worst kind of sorrow. Again, just like I said last week, all that we're commanded to do here in Ephesians 4, all of this is based on what Jesus has done for us first. And I believe that if that's not enough for you, nothing ever will be. Jesus spoke the truth. Jesus never sinned in his anger. Jesus did honest work and shared with those in need. Jesus never said a corrupting word. Jesus never grieved the spirit. Jesus never needed to repent. Jesus was kind and tenderhearted and so forgiving. And we can never perfectly love as Jesus has loved us. But don't be discouraged by that today. Rather, see the way he has already loved you anyway and died for you anyway to forgive you and see the way that he's working in your heart even now and see how he can shape our church community to reflect that likeness, his likeness to the world. May Christ himself be our singular passion and our driving motivation so that we can be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you see our hearts, and you see the work that needs to be done, the work that you're already doing in us by your Spirit. I pray now that you would stir in our hearts these things today, that we would not leave here unchanged. That in light of the cross, we would become people like Jesus. Forgive us, we pray. Change us. And help us be kind and forgive. In Jesus' name.
that's true of you today, that wherever you are in your life, that you are taking, you're putting your trust in him, that I will wait for you really is an expression of trust, and no matter what you're going through, you are waiting on the Lord to come through for you. I hope it's true of you. If I can encourage you before you just take off today or before you make a beeline for those you really know and love well in the church family, if you could look around, find someone you haven't met before, introduce yourself, say hi, take like three or four minutes, five minutes, and just get to know someone, that would be wonderful. You don't need to take off right away. And uh, you still have some time before the 11 o'clock service has to come in, so we encourage you to do that. Let me leave you this prayer. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you.